Chapter Twelve of A Master Hand by Richard Dallas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An episode and a dinner. The jury did not agree. They stood nine for conviction and three for acquittal when the court met in the morning, and there being no prospect of an agreement, they were discharged. It was looked upon as a victory for the defense, but only because a conviction had been generally expected. As it was, the case had to be tried over again. Upon leaving the courtroom, Littell accompanied me to my office, for he was anxious to secure some little delay before the next trial, and wished to see the district attorney regarding it. He said he needed time to recuperate and his appearance bore this out, for I have never seen him look so fagged or dejected. We found the district attorney in his office in conversation with his associate and the inspector. He greeted Lytell very cordially and congratulated him upon his conduct of the case, but Lytell, after only a word of acknowledgment, hastened on to the subject of his visit. He asked for at least a month's interval before the next trial, and urged in support thereof his need of rest and change. The request was readily acceded to, in spite of some objection from the inspector, who was evidently chagrined over the failure of the state's case. "'I suppose, Littell,' the district attorney said quizzically, as we were leaving, "'you also want time to hunt up some evidence to support that very interesting personal account of the murder you gave to the jury.' But Lytell replied with some abruptness, I thought, that the only defect in his theory of the case was that it lacked the evidence of an eyewitness to prove it, which was also lacking upon the part of the State. It is all a matter of deduction from circumstances, he added, and I think mine were fully as reasonable and likely as yours. Yes, replied the district attorney. Three of the twelve jurors apparently agreed with you which created a laugh, but Littell evidently was not in the humor for badinage, and made no rejoinder, and we withdrew to my private office. There we found Miles in waiting. We told him of the date fixed for the next trial, and Littell added that it might afford him opportunity to secure some additional evidence. Of what kind? the detective asked. Any kind, he replied, that will throw doubt upon the state's case. "'Why not hunt for the real criminal?' Miles inquired. "'Do you think you can find him?' Littell asked. "'I can try,' was the reply. "'Well,' Littell said, "'I'm going away and will not return for a time, "'so you and Dallas can have a free hand in the meantime "'to follow your own course. "'But for myself, I don't think you will accomplish much on that line.' The detective made no answer, and I inquired of Littell when he thought of going, and, learning it would probably be the next day, suggested he dine with me at the club that evening, and added, as the idea occurred to me, I will ask Davis and Van Bolt, too. We would all like to see something of you before you go. He accepted the invitation, and, as he prepared to leave us, looked toward Miles, but the latter had his back to us and was absently turning over the pages of a book on the table. After Latell was gone, I waited for Miles to make known the business that had brought him, but he remained absorbed in a brown study. At length, to recall his attention, I inquired if he had any definite plans for the course he meant to pursue, 
adding that I agreed with him in his determination to try and find the real criminal, and that I did not believe it could be so difficult as Littell seemed to judge. He shook his head. It will be difficult, I have no doubt, he said. But still, I think perhaps I can do it. Tell me your plans, I urged, my interest aroused. He hesitated and seemed embarrassed. I think, if you don't mind, I would rather you would leave it all to me just now, he said at length. I was too surprised to make any immediate reply. This man, heretofore I had found subservient to my every suggestion, was now prepared apparently to assume the leadership and relegate me to the background. But, I said when I had recovered from my astonishment, do you expect me to abandon the case altogether? Not at all, he hastened to explain. I only wish you to leave the work of the next few days to me. It is particularly in my line, and besides, I do not think uh, you would find it agreeable. Leave it to me, he urged, and I will report all results to you as soon as possible, and after that I will be guided entirely by you in the matter. He was evidently in earnest and so serious over it that I offered no further objection, though I was somewhat humiliated at what I deemed his lack of confidence in me. When he had left me, I puzzled over his strange conduct, but as I could make nothing of it, wisely determined to resign myself to the inevitable and make the most of the respite this forced inaction would grant me. After I had dispatched notes to Van Bolt and Davis, asking them to dinner, and had attended to some of my routine duties, I made the first use of my freedom by leaving my office and devoting the afternoon to a long horseback ride. It was a glorious winter's day, cold and sparkling and full of sunshine, and I drew in deep lungs full of the bracing air as I directed my way leisurely toward the park. Once clear of the stones, I gave the horse his head, and with an eager bound he had stretched out into a gallop. As we went speeding along through the country for mile after mile, it seemed to me that I had never felt anything so fine as this gallop. After my long siege of worry and work, it was like a tonic to my mind and body, and with every stride of the horse I seemed to get stronger and brighter. I could feel the blood coursing through my veins, while my mental faculties were stirred into renewed vigor, and I began to realize into what a rut I had gotten and how morbid had become my state of mind, and I was content to accept the dictum of Miles and to put the case and all its gruesome details away from me. When at length, wearied with the rapid pace and my horse giving signs of laboring, I pulled him down to a walk and settled with a feeling of tired comfort in the saddle. The buoyancy of youth had reasserted itself in me, and I felt at peace with the world. I had turned about and was well on my way toward home again, given over to pleasant thoughts about lighter things, when I overtook and passed a woman riding by herself. I scarcely noticed her, and would have continued on without giving her a second thought, if I had not heard my name called after me. I stopped and looked back, and to my surprise, recognized Belle Stanton. She was approaching me slowly, patting the neck of her horse, that was a little restive under her, and her manner betokened no consciousness of anything unusual in her salute. For a moment I was doubtful of the accuracy of my hearing, for I scarcely knew her, if it could be said I knew her at all, the chance meeting at the trial furnishing the only excuse for acquaintanceship, but my doubts were dispelled by her friendly little nod as she came up with me. 
Evidently she considered the acquaintance legitimate enough for informality, even if I did entertain some doubts on the subject. She looked well in her riding habit and sat her horse gracefully, and, as she swayed in her saddle, looked at me with a merry challenge in her eyes. "'You had rather ride with me than ride alone, had you not?' she asked demurely, and I obediently wheeled my horse beside hers, as I assured her the encounter was welcome, and while we rode on together she told me she had wanted to know me for a long time, and that she felt we were old friends, though this had been our first real meeting, and many other such things that a man likes to hear a pretty woman say, even though he knows she is fooling him. "'Don't you think,' she said, that people sometimes feel they are going to like each other uh, before they have ever met. And she laid her hand gently on my arm and looked up for my answer. I have since tried to defend myself for the weakness of that moment in which I was near being recreant to the memory of a friend. But I know in my heart that there was no excuse for me except it be the witchery of the woman and the charm of the occasion. She was pretty. Awfully pretty. And she knew all too well how to attract men. And then, too, the time and place were in her favor. The winter's day was in its last twilight. The moon was already filling the wayside with light that made shadows on the snow. And through the long avenue of trees that stretched before us, no one was in sight. We, too, were alone. As I felt the caressing touch and looked into the fair face lifted to mine, I forgot all else in the intoxication of the moment, and, responding impulsively, leaned down to meet her glance, and would have been guilty of what foolishness I know not, had her woman's mood not changed in time to save me. With a laugh she wrapped me over the fingers with her whip, and, spurring her horse, was gone from my reach in a moment. No man altogether likes the sensation of having been played with, and as I galloped after her I made up my mind not to let myself be again distracted by her wiles, but when I should have overtaken her, to make the most of my opportunity to learn anything more she might know about the death of White. When she had tired of the fun of leading me on a long and not very dignified chase, she pulled up and waited for me to rejoin her, remarking casually as I did so that I seemed to have a good steady horse. Yes, I replied, rather sharply, I fear, for I was out of breath and humor, and a fast one when I think it worth while to call on him. She looked him over carelessly as she replied, I thought he was doing his best just now. He seems a little blown, does he not? I deigned no reply to this, and there were prospects of our ride being finished in silence, for if I intended to sulk, she evidently meant to let me. Such a course, however, was not calculated to accomplish my purpose, and as we were nearing the city again, I determined to introduce the subject I had in mind. "'It is strange,' I said, "'is it not that you and I should both be connected so closely with the circumstances of Arthur White's death?' She looked up surprised, and evidently none too well pleased with the unexpected change in my tone. "'I don't know why you should say that,' she answered. "'I had nothing to do with Mr. White's death.' "'No, nor had I directly,' I replied. "'But I was at his house the night of his death, and he was at yours.' "'You may have been at his house,' she answered, "'but I do not know that he was at mine.' "'But he left his ulster there,' I insisted. "'His ulster was left there,' 
she said, changing my phraseology. Then she stopped and hesitated. But let us talk of something else, she concluded, for the subject makes me sad. And I discerned a little tremor in her voice that I thought was genuine. Sometimes a woman like Belle Stanton may grieve, though she must not show it, and I was sorry for her, but I meant to persevere in my purpose nevertheless. I do not wish to make you feel badly, I tried to say gently, but I want to learn all I can about Arthur's death, and if you know any more than you have yet disclosed, I wish you would tell it to me. She looked away, as if determining something before answering and then asked the reason I had for thinking she knew anything more than she had told at the trial. For reply, I quoted to her Van Bolt's words, You will find it is through Bell Stanton that you must trace the criminal. Who said that? she asked quickly. I told her. Oh, it was Van Bolt, was it? Well, you may find he was mistaken. And her tone betokened indifference. "'Do you, then, know nothing at all that can help us in the case?' I inquired. She stopped her horse, for we had reached the Fifty-Ninth Street entrance, and, wheeling him so that she faced me, said, "'I know very little more than I have told, probably nothing of any importance. But if you will come and see me sometime, I will help you if I can.' But I was impatient, and urged her to tell me at once what she knew. No, she replied, you must leave me here, and if you wish to learn more, you will have to come and see me. And turning her horse, she waved her hand to me and rode away. I sat looking after her just a moment, debating over what she had said, and then hastened home, for it was approaching my dinner hour. But the first thing I did on entering the club was to write a line to Miles. Stanton knows more than she has told, I said find out what it is. And then I made my preparations for dinner. At eight o'clock I was in the reception room, awaiting the arrival of my guests, and as I surveyed myself in the long mirror, I felt a thrill of pleasure at finding myself again a part of the social world. After all, there are two sides to life, the serious and the gay, and we must mingle them to get the most out of it. For a long time now I had known the serious side, but the release from the service on the case and the ride and encounter of the afternoon had awakened in me a longing for the brighter side that I had no disposition to deny. When Davis entered with his cheery way and cordial greeting, I was more than usually glad to see him, and we fell as readily into our accustomed easy intercourse as though it had never been interrupted by a tragedy. A few minutes later, Lytell and Van Bolt appeared, and our party was complete. I advanced to Lytell as he appeared, eager to welcome him, but he had stopped on the threshold, and while rolling a cigarette between his deft fingers, was inquiring casually of Davis concerning the latest bit of social scandal, as if he had no more serious thought in the world. A few hours had sufficed to remove every sign of care and fatigue that I had observed in the morning. Van Bolt, in the meanwhile, had sauntered over to the fireside, and, leaning on the mantel, was looking from one to the other of us with that rare smile that helped to make him so attractive. I was proud of my friends as I stood in their midst and reflected that it would be hard to find three better-dressed, better-appearing men than those. They were gentlemen, all of them, not by assertion or imitation, but because it was inherent in them 
and the atmosphere they created was reposeful and agreeable. When dinner was announced, we adjourned to the private dining-room I had reserved, and were received by my old servitor, Brown, standing ceremoniously at the door, and I think he was as pleased as anyone over the reunion. His bow to each of us as he passed the frosted martinis was almost as salam, and no dish was served till it had passed under his critical eye, and no bottle uncorked till he had tried its temperature with solicitous touch. We were a pleasant party of old friends together as we sat down that night, with mutual interests and associations to talk over, and the conversation drifted from one topic to another in easy sequence. The boyish gaiety of Davis was infectious, and drew out the brightest side of Van Bolt's nature, though in the sober tone habitual to him, while Lytell's side-fire of cynical, humorous comment gave a keener edge and point to all that was said. After the coffee and the cigars had been brought and Brown had retired, our talk took a more serious turn and eventually passed to the subject of the trial, which by tacit understanding had been avoided before. I would very willingly have let things continue as they had been and have ignored the subject altogether, but it was not to be. It was evidently on all minds and would not be avoided. Someone referred to it and immediately all else lost interest. The witnesses and their evidence, the bearing of the prisoner, the division of the jury, and the arguments of counsel were each discussed in turn, till finally Davis, in his irreverent way, inquired of Lytell if he flattered himself the jury had believed the fairy tale he had told them. "'So you think it was a fairy tale I told the jury, do you, Ned?' Lytell said. "'Well, it may have been.' but I have known truth as strange. Do you mean to say, Van Bolt inquired, that you believe the statement you made to the jury to be the true explanation of the murder? I do, Lattell answered. But if that were so, it might put the crime upon some man we know, Van Bolt continued, possibly even a friend, and uh, you cannot think that. Why not? Lytell answered. It would not be the first time a man of intelligence and social prominence had done such a thing. You can never tell what a man is capable of till he has been tried. Very few men, I admit you, he went on, commit great crimes. But that is not always because they are too good for it. It is sometimes only because the fatal occasion does not arise for them, and sometimes because the men themselves are not equal to the occasion. The man who has once committed a murder, he continued reflectively, while we all listened intently, is no worse in nature necessarily after than before the deed, and no more dangerous to society, that is, if he is a man of intelligence. Because he has done it once is no reason that he will do it again, any more than the fact that he has never done it is an assurance that he never will. There are worse offenses than murder, too. A man may kill another man and yet not cheat at cards or talk about a woman. He paused, but no one said anything, and he went on in the same dispassionate tone. There are men of wealth and position in this city, Men respected and sought after, not a few, who would kill if the occasion were great enough. It is only a matter of measure with them, and it is among such men that you must look for Arthur White's murderer. 
When he concluded, there was an expression of horror upon Davis's face, and I was repelled even while fascinated by this cold-blooded analysis of my fellow men's nature and motives, but I recognized there was a degree of truth in it nevertheless. It was Van Bult who continued the conversation. "'I do not agree with you,' he said, "'and I do not believe you mean what you say. I know the pessimistic view you affect to take of human nature, and I know, too, the real charity you feel for it in your heart.' Van Bolt spoke warmly, but Lytell received the tribute with a shrug, as he held his glass up to the light and judged critically its color. "'Have your way,' he said. "'But if the time ever comes when my words are verified, remember I said them.' "'Perhaps we may not have to wait very long for the truth about this case,' I now said, "'for Miles thinks he has discovered a new clue and is hard at work upon it, and I happened upon something this afternoon that may help him.' "'What was that?' Davis inquired. But I did not think it worth while to go into the details of my meeting with Bell Stanton, and did not answer. "'A case is uh, too much for such as Miles to solve, I think,' Lytell said, and then looking at me, added, "'You might do better, Dick, but I'm not sure the job would repay you.' "'I would willingly undertake it, nevertheless,' I answered, "'if I only knew where to begin.' If there is uh, any truth in Lytell's words, it might lead you to very unpleasant consequences, Van Bolt here suggested. I was reflecting over his words when Lytell, reading my thoughts, added, If you do continue your investigation of this case, and it does lead to some man you know, what will you do? I can do but one thing, I answered. Give that man to justice. And if he should be a friend... What then? Such a contingency had never occurred to me before, but in the trend of the conversation it seemed a possibility, and I felt its awful responsibility. Give it up, Dick, advised Davis. Lytell is only dissecting you morally, and the idea is too absurd to talk about, much less to accept seriously. But I saw the others were waiting for my decision, and I would not evade it. I would still do the same. I answered. Do you think it would be really worth while, or your duty, to do such a thing? Lytell asked. Winters will probably be acquitted, White is past helping, and what could be gained by offering up a friend as a sacrifice? Nothing, I answered, but the demands of the law. He leaned over and put his hand on my shoulder. Dick, he said, you are a strange fellow with more than your share of conscientiousness. But even with you there must be a point where duty ceases and human nature asserts itself. Would you, if it were one of us three, your friends, upon whom you fixed this crime, give him over to the gallows? I refuse to answer, I said. But you would do it, Van Bolt asserted, and I did not dispute him. "'I am going home,' Davis broke in. "'I have had enough of this. "'You fellows can go on hanging one another all night if you choose, "'but I won't have a hand in it.' "'And he pushed his chair back from the table. "'The laugh that followed relieved the tension, and we prepared to break up. "'Let us have a last drink together before we go out,' Lytell said, "'and following his example we all rose and filled our glasses. "'The toast?' 
Van Bolt asked. Failure to Dallas, said Littell, and I could not refuse to join them. To change the tenor of our thoughts, I asked Littell if he had definitely decided about his trip. Yes, he replied. I shall go to Florida tomorrow, but will be back in time to receive any revelations you may have to make. Better take him with you, said Davis. He is hardly good company, but it will keep him out of harm. I not go, Van Bolt urged. It will do you good. You need rest even more than Lytell. No, I said, I will stay here. By this time we had reached the front door, and no one seemed disposed to linger. Though our little dinner had begun auspiciously and full of promise of a pleasant evening, its ending had been rather melancholy, and I knew they all felt so, and try as they would, could not throw the weight off. Somehow or other this death of White seemed fated to bring us all constant trouble. Davis and Van Bolt nodded me a farewell as they went away, but Lytell held out his hand, and as I took it, said earnestly, almost affectionately, "'Your fidelity to your purpose may prove to your sorrow, Dick, but I respect you for it, and I wish some of us could be more like you.' "'It is you that I would be like,' I answered him. "'Good night,' he said, and joined the others as they crossed the square. As I stood for a moment, looking after their retreating forms, I saw again the detective I had seen shadowing Winters the day I had met him by White's house. End of chapter 12